Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Cal Raustiala, and I'm really honored to have on the podcast Ben Rhodes. Ben was, uh, I, I would say, present for really every major foreign policy decision and issue during the Obama years. He began as a foreign policy speechwriter for President Obama, actually began on the campaign, and ultimately ended up as Deputy National Security Advisor from September 2009 till the end of the Obama administration. So, uh, Ben, welcome to International Law Behind the Headlines. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on. And Thanks, uh, Sure, absolutely. And what I thought we would do, I know you're not a lawyer, Ben, and our audience is mostly lawyers, but you, you, know, you had such a unique perch uh, throughout the Obama years. I thought I'd ask you about two signature agreements that came out of uh, the Obama administration, both of which are of great interest to international lawyers. So first, the Paris Accord on climate, and then the Iran deal, which has really been in the news quite a bit lately. So I th- we could start with either one, but what, what unites them for me is the fact that both of those agreements were, were not uh, treaties that went before the Senate for confirmation. In fact, uh, they were essentially non-legally binding, though that's a point of minor technical dispute among some lawyers about exactly the, the legal nature of them. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a, I think, a deliberate choice to, uh, to have a more flexible and non-binding approach to both Iran and to, to climate. And I just wanted to ask you about the making of, of that decision, if I'm right about that, uh, and the process that went into it. So, um, so maybe we could start with Iran or, or sure, Paris, yeah. whichever one you yeah. prefer. Iran is fine. Okay. So, um, so how, did you, how did you and the other uh, uh, decision makers begin to think about crafting that agreement? Well, um, we, uh, we knew what we wanted to achieve in terms of the agreement itself, which is we wanted Iran to take a series of steps that would essentially sufficiently roll back the key elements of their nuclear program uh, to put them further away from the capacity to pursue a nuclear weapon. We wanted um, as well uh, to have a, a very vigorous inspections and monitoring regime so that international inspectors and kind of technical verification measures could be installed across the Iranian nuclear supply chain to verify that uh, they were complying with the terms of the deal. Um, and we knew, therefore, that there would be a series of Iranian commitments associated with it, you know, to ship out their stockpile of low-enriched uranium, to uh, take out two-thirds of their centrifuges, uh, to essentially uh, destroy the core of their heavy water reactor that could have pursued plutonium. And then for the U.S., what we had to do in response was to give them relief from some of the nuclear-related sanctions that had been imposed on them over a course of several years. Um, so in terms of the legal concerns on the U.S. side, we actually had in existing law a presidential waiver authority uh, so that the President of the United States could waive uh, aspects of the nuclear-related sanctions to give the Iranians that relief. So that was already built into the existing sanctions uh, framework. Uh-huh. And that you know, precluded us from having to seek uh, you know, congressional authorization to implement the sanctions relief that was the U.S. Uh, side of the deal. And what about the use of the Security Council uh, in this process? So one of the charges that I recall 
some critics made was that uh, you were, I'm just going to say you for the Obama administration, but the president was seeking to kind of, A, cut the Senate out of a process that arguably the Senate should be a part of. This is not my argument, but that was an argument that was made. And then use the Security Council uh, to kind of lock that in uh, internationally as a matter of international law, relieve certain sanctions that have been put in place through prior Security Council action. And so in that sense, um, you know, kind of uh, pushed Congress to one side and and used uh, these UN processes to get what what it wanted. Um, how, I mean, how do you kind of respond to that criticism? Well, there's several elements. Uh, you know, the first thing I'd say is, as a general matter, whether you're talking about Iran or Paris, um, people say to me, you know, well, shouldn't you have gotten congressional approval for these things? And look, the reality is that with this Republican Party in Congress, there's absolutely nothing that is going to get Senate approval um, in any of these areas. We, we couldn't get Senate ratification of uh, the International uh, Treaty on Disabilities despite the support right. of Incredible. Bob Dole and U.S. veterans. So, you know, politics is the art of the possible here. Um, second thing I'd say is it is different than, say, a traditional arms control treaty. A traditional arms control treaty, say, between the United States and Russia, involves the United States being compelled to take a number of significant steps uh, on our end with respect to our nuclear arsenal. And the Iran agreement has no elements that are like that. The, the U.S., obligations relate only to the sanctions relief and existing law uh, gave us the capacity to to carry out our side of the deal that said the first thing i'd say is that we did work with bob corker uh who then chairman of the foreign relations committee to give congress a capacity to be heard on the iran deal and essentially what that was was the corker cardin legislation that created a congressional review period where before the uh, before the Iran agreement could be implemented, Congress got a set period of time to review the agreement and then to vote on whether or not to disapprove of the agreement. And we therefore had to secure enough votes to prevent Congress from killing the agreement. And once we were able to do that, then and only then did the uh, agreement uh, get implemented. So there was congressional participation uh, and I think that that can't be you know totally overlooked. On the international side, the reality is, first of all, the way in which the Security Council participation was designed is, you know, first of all, the entire negotiation was tied to the Security Council because the key parties on our side were the permanent five members of the Security Council plus Germany and the European Union. So this was always essentially a negotiation between the permanent membership of the Security Council in Iran. So there's nothing new about the idea that this would find its way to the Security Council. And frankly, a lot of the sanctions that have been put in place on Iran, including our domestic sanctions, were tied to a Security Council framework of sanctions that had been put in place. Uh, what the Security Council resolution did uh, is it essentially codified um, uh, under this international legal basis the various obligations of the Iran agreement. However, the way in which we designed it uh, was very biased towards, I would say, the United States, um, because uh, essentially any single member of the Security Council uh, was given the capacity um, to uh, veto uh, in, in the instance of uh, other parties. Uh, if the other parties to the agreement 
decided that um, they wanted um, uh, to, to take a certain action, any, any one member uh, could block that action related to the amendment of the agreement. So the U.S. preserves its freedom of action as a veto-wielding member of the Security Council uh, with respect to any changes uh, to the agreement going forward. I heard all the complaints out of Congress. I would say um, it's nothing unusual or unprecedented about a U.S. president or administration uh, entering into some uh, Security Council resolution without the prior approval of Congress. That's of course. a routine thing. Um, so, you know, I think the Republicans, uh, you know, I'm not an international lawyer. I, I fully recognize that. But, you know, I think this became more of a, a political argument than a a legal argument uh, emanating from the Republicans who said, uh, you know, that this was approved by the UN and not not by the U.S. Congress. Uh, that happens all the time uh, in foreign policy. Agreed, agreed. And so the Iranians, were they uh, in any way, uh, what was their reaction as this strategy unfolded? Can you, can you talk a little bit about whether they were, would they have preferred, for example, I, I totally agree that the Senate was a hopeless path, and maybe we'll talk in a little bit about uh, you know, kind of what that means for the future of, of American commitments abroad. But, you know, there's no question you were not going to get something through the Senate. Uh, how did they want to see this unfold? And were they sort of uh, down with this whole approach? They, they, the Iranians are very good students of American politics. And so they knew full well that you weren't going to get a two-thirds Senate majority to ratify a binding treaty obligation uh, from the United States. Again, what I would say is that um, the, the, the only obligations that were on us were capable through executive action through the sanctions relief. I think all things being equal, yeah, sure, the Iranians would prefer that, you know, you have uh, Senate ratification of this. Um, but it was really never a question because, again, they, they could read the tea leaves as well as anybody with respect to um, uh, American politics uh, and particularly the politics of Iran. Um, in the United States. Um, one of the interesting things that, uh, Cal, I'd say is that even after we left office, Congress did not want to take the responsibility to kill the deal either. So if you'll recall in 2017... Right. There's a sort of pattern there. Yeah, so there, we built into the Corker Cardin Law that I spoke about, congressional cert uh, or executive branch certification to Congress on a, on a regular basis. And what was almost comical, tragicomic, in my view, to watch in 2017 is President Trump got frustrated that his administration kept having to certify that Iran was complying with the deal because it proved that he had been essentially lying about the fact that Iran was cheating and, and, and this is horrible. And so he decertified, he refused to certify the agreement in the fall of 2017. That immediately kicked the issue to Congress under the law, right? So Congress was protected in this law because it wasn't just the initial review period. They had these required reporting requirements from the executive branch to certify Iranian compliance, and they gave themselves the capacity to kill the deal if and when the United States ever failed to certify. And so when Trump failed to certify Iranian compliance in the fall of 2017, even though Iran was complying, Congress had its opportunity to kill this deal, and they didn't do it. They didn't take it. Um, so. Talking. Yeah, so for, for all this kind of you know, hand-wringing about there was no, no, no uh, treaty obligation, the U.S. Congress, under the law that it wrote, gave itself the opportunity to kill this deal multiple times, and each time it failed to do so and refused to do so. And 
ultimately then President Trump just decided uh, to leave uh, through his own executive action. Right, right. So let, let's talk about that kind of generalized problem a little bit of the relationship between the president and Congress when it comes to American commitments uh, abroad. So it does seem, I mean, many people have commented on how difficult it is to get something through the Senate. You pointed to the Disability Treaty, which is, a, I think, a very egregious example. There are others as well. Uh, scholars have said, let's basically forget about the idea of an Article II treaty. Treaties, I think Jamie Rubin wrote years ago an op-ed in the New York Times about the end of the age of treaties. This is just kind of over. We have enough treaties. Is it your sense that that's essentially correct and that going forward we should expect Democrat or Republican presidents to increasingly use uh, their executive powers, enter into sole executive agreements, uh, congressional executive agreements, but anything that isn't going to go to the Senate for a two-thirds approval process, and that that, although that was our constitutionally mandated approach for quite a long time, uh, it's pretty much moribund today. Do you have that sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't know until there's a fundamental shift, um, again, in the Republican Party. Um, you know, th- th- I know it's a partisan statement, but but essentially at a certain point, um, any kind of treaty. I mean, I, we did continue to pass some fairly, you know, uh, below the radar, minor <laughs> um, uh, international, uh, you know, on, on nuclear security, for instance. I remember we entered into several treaties uh, with congressional support. Um, but in terms of a two-thirds Senate majority uh, binding commitments on the United States, in the current political reality, I, I just don't see that. Uh, we did get the New START treaty done in 2010. And there's no way we could have gotten that done without kind of an old guard of Republicans, people like Richard Luger, who's no longer with us, uh, Bob Corker, who's you know retired now. Um, th- those kind of internationalist Republicans just don't exist. And so for the foreseeable future, it's hard for me to see any treaty um, that that would get through uh, the Senate. And it, this really isn't a matter, I mean, of, you know, the president needs to get out there and make the case. I mean, the Disabilities Treaty, if you, if you polled Americans on whether or not essentially the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, right. should apply to other countries, I mean, there was overwhelming popular support for that, that, that treaty. Um, so it wasn't a, a lack of, of trying to lead public opinion. It, it, was, it was an entrenched ideology in the Republican Party that kind of took hold under Reagan and has grown ever since, uh, that puts sovereignty at the cent- center of their view of, of international law. And so even treaties like the Disabilities Treaty or the Law of the Sea that uh, I think uh, are highly favorable uh, from the U.S. national interest perspective are kind of dead on arrival up there. I have to agree with that. I mean, you know, here at the American Society, we um, we are nonpartisan, but there's no question that the law of the sea uh, illustrates the phenomenon you're talking about, where you've had Republican and Democratic presidents alike, uh, as well as the Pentagon, say this is a good a good thing. We should we should be a part of this, and there is a kind of a core group of Republican senators that are deeply opposed, and that's that's sort of enough to to keep it out. So it's unfortunate. Um, though, you know, maybe not so unfortunate because I think we've seen, as, as President Obama showed and, and, and other presidents have shown, that presidents can do a lot uh, without that using that Senate process. 
The question is about the kinds of commitments that get made, uh, the power of those commitments. And that's, I want to pivot to Paris because that's an example, as well as the Iran deal, where uh, there's a little bit of live by the sword, die by the sword. And so there's a question about American, I don't want to say it's credibility per se, but kind of the consistency of our commitments when we use these alternative approaches. So, um, so with Paris and climate change, uh, was the thinking pretty similar about there's no way we're going to get this through the Senate? Uh, obviously, the Kyoto Protocol and other uh, previous examples illustrated the barriers. Um, was there a different sort of thinking about how to approach Paris or just paint a little bit of a picture of how you, you and the others in the White House thought about the right path forward? Yeah, Paris was even more interesting in some ways uh, because, once again, we knew that the U.S. target in terms of our emissions reduction, um, the idea of making that emissions reduction target uh, contingent upon a two-thirds Senate ratification of a treaty was not going to be possible. Um, but uh, if you look at how the Paris Agreement is structured, it, the emissions target itself is not the legally binding part of it. Uh, there are legally binding elements uh, under international law which relate to essentially the reporting requirements, uh, the transparency requirements. Um, so essentially the accountability for meeting your targets comes from the fact that you are compelled on a regular basis to present your progress to the rest of the world. Um, and in that regard, uh, I think our legal analysis, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, having <laughs> been in all these meetings, is that the U.S. had ratified previous instruments related to international environmental law, uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which you know was the origin organization that led to the Paris Agreement uh, the U.S. had entered into, um, ironically, under George H.W. Bush, um, when these issues were less partisan. Um, so we felt like we could credibly uh, enter into the requirement that so long as we are in the agreement, uh, we are compelled to uh, report on and, and meet the transparency targets and reporting requirements uh, that were negotiated in Paris, whereas our emissions reductions targets um, did not, you know, necessitate uh, like a, 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 did not have the same kind of binding uh, international legal basis it would require congressional approval. So it was a kind of uh, hybrid in a sense in that elements of the Paris Agreement are, were in our view legally bonding and other elements were not. Um, and it was essentially once again an instance where we were doing as much as we possibly could within our own political reality. Other countries, by the way, some of them you know, took a different view and did uh, uh, move some of their commitments through a parliamentary approval process. So different countries took, I think, different interpretations of this. But I think it is important to note that we did see some of these uh, elements of the Paris Agreement as um, tied to pre-existing um, international uh, agreements that the United States had ratified. Um, and, and, and that kind of provided us with a floor that we could build build up from in terms of uh, the, the various U.S. commitments. Right, right. So let me ask you about when you're either in Paris or Iran or any number of other issues that came up during your time in the White House, 
uh, you know, lawyers obviously are playing some uh, decision-making role, both in a direct lawyerly capacity as lawyers, uh, but then you had a lot of lawyers around, uh, not least the president of the United States, who uh, was a, you know, very skilled uh, and sophisticated lawyer. And so I'm curious about how you as a, a kind of non-lawyer saw legal arguments play out in the political decision-making process kind of at the highest levels. How seriously were they taken? Uh, what, you know, what can you say generally and without revealing anything confidential about, about how law was utilized in the Obama White House? Well, I think it was central to our foreign policy. And again, I was more on the political end of the spectrum. Um, but oftentimes on any decision, you are taking into account uh, the legal questions, the political questions, and the policy questions. And um, everything I worked on had elements of this. We talked about Iran. We talked about Paris, Cuba, uh, for instance. We wanted to normalize our relationship with Cuba as much as possible. Um, if it was up to me uh, as the negotiator with the Cubans and the leader of that policy, you know, I would have opened up as much U.S. Uh, investment and travel to Cuba as possible. So, for instance, I proposed regulatory changes, or we had a process to propose regulatory changes to facilitate fairly broad U.S. investment uh, in Cuba. But we went to the Office of Legal Counsel, and they told us, uh, if you go beyond changes that have to have to be tied to empowering the Cuban people or improving the humanitarian circumstance of the Cuban people, then you're going to get crosswise with the U.S. embargo, which is codified in law. So our entire Cuba policy uh, was essentially what changes can we make under executive action? And we knew that there was a hard wall uh, if we got a legal opinion that we were going beyond the U.S. law. Um, I think where the lawyers played the most prominent role in the, the key debates I was in was around the use of force. Um, I think it cannot be stressed enough that President Obama, one of the main reasons he did not intervene in the Syrian civil war is because there was no domestic or international legal basis. That, that really was the, mm -hmm. the guiding force behind his decision to go to Congress uh, in 2013 after the Syrian chemical weapons attack because uh, he knew he had no international legal basis um, uh, without a UN Security Council resolution. This was not in self-defense. Um, and, and absent either domestic or international legal basis, he really didn't want to take that action. Um, I think in Libya, for instance, um, we had an international legal basis because we had a very strong UN Security Council resolution. But the domestic uh, legal basis was tenuous and kind of required us to change the nature of our participation in that conflict uh, after the first period under the War Powers Report. And so we stopped being uh, responsible for bombing targets and went into a support role uh, to our, uh, uh, our European and NATO allies, in part because uh, we thought that our legal analysis suggested that if we were engaged in those types of active hostilities um, beyond the initial War Powers reporting requirement, uh, that we would run into trouble. Um, right. So, so time and again, I could keep on going, but uh, on, on use of force in particular, this question of international and domestic law was ever present in the Situation Room. Uh, on all the key negotiations I was involved in, Cuba and Iran and Paris, um, we, uh, we, we had uh, significant participation from lawyers, again, looking at both the domestic and international elements of this. Um, I think President Obama uh, had people... Uh, 
uh, in high positions uh, who had a, a deep respect for international law. Our last Deputy National Security Advisor, Avril Haines, um, this is her level of expertise. She had entered into the administration as the NSC legal advisor and an expert in international law. So uh, the people around him and his own predisposition was towards making sure that uh, we are uh, integrating the legal perspective into policymaking. And by the way, uh, this isn't just out of, you know, uh, some squeamishness. Um, it's a, out of a worldview. Uh, President Obama strongly believed that the U.S. ultimately benefits from a system of laws and norms that govern international behavior. And that even as the U.S. is constrained in some ways uh, by international law and international norms, uh, ultimately uh, we benefit more from having them in place because it shapes the environment with, with, within which other nations act. Uh, whether it's an emerging nation like China that is testing those boundaries, whether it's a reactionary power like Russia, that has to be held accountable when it violates international law. Better for us to be a participant in strengthening international laws and norms, uh, even at the expense of some constraint of our freedom of action, than to return to the law of the jungle, wherein uh, countries that are more likely than the United States uh, to, uh, to, to commit atrocities, to violate the sovereignty and integrity of their neighbors, to uh, you know, violate international uh, trade agreements, uh, it, once we diminish international law, our ability to help hold others accountable uh, begins uh, to diminish as well. And, and unfortunately, that's where we are today. Ben, I have to really like that statement. I think we may make you an honorary member of the American Society of International <laughs> yeah. Law. It's very well put. Well, um, I think it's important, Cal, that, that people make this case based on the benefits to U.S. national interest and not just, you know, we have to follow the letter of certain international laws that, that may seem cumbersome to Americans. Agreed. There is a policy and political case to be made for why in a world, particularly in which you have a rising China and a reactionary Russia, we, we should be working to strengthen these. Uh, uh, one other good example is arbitration in the South China Sea. Um, right. You know, the U.S. has concerns about China going around and bullying other claimants in the South China Sea uh, to extract concessions. The only hook that a country like the Philippines has uh, to protect its own sovereignty um, beyond the U.S. You know, going to war with China uh, over some rocks in the South China Sea is international law. And when we were support the Philippines in pursuing international arbitration against the Chinese, guess what the Chinese would throw back in our face? That the U.S. is not in the law of the sea. You know? So um, I, I would rather be in a stronger position to hold countries accountable than to be an enabling power, essentially, in saying that big nations can ignore these laws. Agreed, agreed. Unfortunately, there, it seems like the rhetoric of, of restraint of international law is a set of things that stop us from doing things we would otherwise want to do dominates uh, a lot of thinking uh, in this country. And the way you articulated it is actually something that provides uh, advantages. Is, I mean, there is restraint, of course, but there's... Um, you know, it's like the fetters that make us free. And so I think that's very well said. Let me ask, let's close with a little bit about China. So this is international law behind the headlines. We've been talking mostly about the past. Um, but obviously, the situation with China is really heating up. This is one of the areas, one of the few areas where I sometimes hear even quite vociferous critics of the president, the current president, say, you know, he's right about this. Either he's right about Huawei, he's right about the South China Sea and needing to be a bit more aggressive, he's right about China's uh, intellectual property 
uh, theft. Uh, we need to confront China more. And so I'm just curious about how you would compare what President Trump is doing to what you saw in the White House during your uh, tenure there, uh, and whether you think there are, um, you know, there are some positive things that are happening right now uh, on the part of this, this administration. And then finally, whether where you think it's all going, is this going in a good direction? Because it's certainly, uh, we're in a different place with China than we were a year ago. So there's, there's quite a bit there you can run with, but just go ahead and run. Well, it might not surprise you that I, I don't find uh, much to support in, in what this administration is doing. And, and this is actually really not out of some knee-jerk partisanship, because I do think that the, the impulse to become more confrontational to China um, makes sense. Uh, China has been pushing the boundaries, has been stealing intellectual property, has been engaged in all kinds of behavior uh, that is essentially testing the limits of the, the current international order. Frankly, when we came into office in the midst of financial crisis, we weren't going to get into some trade war with China. Um, towards the end of our administration, with our economy in a much stronger position, you know, I think it was natural whoever the next president was, to, to possibly pivot towards a more confrontational approach to China. So I have no problem with that. The problem that I have is that Trump has decided to essentially isolate the United States on the way into that confrontation. So he pulls out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement that could have been a block of countries that could, could have come with us in challenging China. He alienates Europeans and imposes tariffs on the Europeans at the same time that he's picking trade wars with Chinese. He is systematically removing the United States from uh, the architecture of international agreements uh, that we would potentially be able to use to hold China accountable. He's not pursuing enforcement through the World Trade Organization. Uh, frankly, my own view is that if you get a second Trump term, we're probably out of the World Trade Organization, so he doesn't want to use that. Why does all this matter? It seems like it's in a death spiral right now. It's in a death spiral. And why does this matter? I mean, in the short term, it matters just because we have less leverage on the Chinese. Uh, if you're going to get into a fight outside a bar, uh, why wouldn't you want all your big, strong friends standing around you? Why do it by yourself? But the bigger point here is the arc of the geopolitical context. Yes, the U.S. is the stronger party now. Um, but I got to tell you, China has over a billion people. They will at a certain point, be a larger economy than us. Um, Some would say that they're now. Yeah, and, and under some metrics, they are now. Um, frankly, they're a more predictable actor than us, so other nations are getting more comfortable in accepting, you know, essentially, uh, Chinese do dominance or influence over U.S. dominance or influence, uh, particularly in Asia-Pacific. But the bigger point here is that the U.S. has this window, uh, this post-World War II window, where we're able to be the country that, that essentially, more than anybody else, shapes the rules and norms that govern international behavior. We should be making maximum use of that to try to consolidate and expand an international order of our design so that when China becomes uh, more and more ascendant, they are constrained by those existing international arrangements. Uh, by the network of alliances we built, the network of trade agreements we built, the network of international institutions we built. We're doing China's work for them, Cal, in taking these things apart. If you wipe that slate clean, the next international order is going to look a lot more like what the Chinese want than what the United States wants. So it's actually kind of a remarkable, uh, uh, you know, a remarkable self 
own, an own goal, if you will, for the United States to say, okay, Xi Jinping, we're going to do your work for you. We're going to undermine the legitimacy of the international system that constrains you. We're going to break apart uh, the network of international institutions and agreements that we could use to hold you accountable. And we're just going to do this out in the street, law of the jungle. Right now, we may have an advantage, but I, I, like a lot of things with Trump, the bill is going to come due probably after he's gone. And, Unfortunately. And it's not going to be good. And, and Trump doesn't care about that, right? So, so whatever short-term sugar high benefit we may get, and I have yet <laughs> to see the benefit, uh, all of us are going to be paying for it. Agreed. Well, that's a fantastic way to end. Uh, ben, I really appreciate you coming on. Let me just plug uh, Ben's memoir, um, The World As It Is, uh, which chronicles his time in the White House and his, I think, Ben, you went on every single overseas trip with President Obama. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of, lot of countries where I didn't see much other than motorcades and, and, and government buildings, but a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. And, and Ben really had a front row seat for, for pretty much every major decision uh, around foreign policy during those years. So uh, the book's really well written. It's a great book. And Ben, I really appreciate you coming on and I hope we can get you back on the podcast at some point. Great. Thanks a lot, Cal. Sure. Take care. <laughs>